2: Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, October 5th. I'm your host, Terry Arango, with this week's returning co-host, Kristen Selby-Gonzalez, Director of Autism Education for Enzymedica, and our returning guest, Sergeant Goodchild, the Founder and Executive Director of Active Healing, a 501c3 organization actively, actively healing children by honoring and integrating the natural order of human development. This is part two of our conversation with Sergeant Goodchild on the topic of neurological reorganization for brain injury, the relationship of structure and function with therapeutic applications. Part one aired on August 17th, so I encourage listeners to seek that out in the Voice America archive because that was a really meaty interview with a lot of important background information about structure and function. Welcome, Sarge.
0: Uh, Welcome, Terry. Hello. Um, It's a pleasure to be on, on the show, and I'm I'm thrilled to have Kristen joining us today as well. I think this is going to be a fantastic interview. So thank you for having me on.
3: Oh,
2: you're quite welcome,
3: Sergeant. Hi, Kristen. Hi, everyone. Hi, Terry. I'm just uh, equally excited. Um, I, I'd heard uh, on before, so I'm just so thrilled that we get to do Part 2. Great.
2: Okay. So before we pick up with where we left off in Part 1 and walk listeners through therapy sessions and things they can do at home, Let's do a quick recap for our listeners. Sarge, you had oxygen starvation at birth, and along with your seizure disorder that doctors gave toxic levels of medications for, eventually your parents were told that you had autism and mental retardation. They were told to institutionalize you, but your parents were courageous and didn't listen to doomsday doctors. What did they do?
0: Um, I just, I'll, I'll put one thing in there, Terry, and that is that my parents did listen to the doomsday doctors. Um, they listened to them for quite a while, and that's actually how I ended up on all those, all those medications at adult toxic levels. But eventually, they became really frustrated with the answers that they were getting from those professionals. And ultimately, what ended up happening was my, my mother was volunteering her time to help a child who was going through a program of neurological reorganization. And she was coming home and sharing stories around the dinner table with my father and the rest of the family after her volunteer days. And the stories were remarkable about how this little girl, who had apparently drowned at the bottom of a pool, been brought up and resuscitated um, and was given a very, very poor prognosis by the medical doctors. And here my mother was coming home each night after her volunteer time with just these remarkable stories of how well this little girl was doing and the sort of progress that she was making. My father, um, you know, is a a very brilliant man and um, decided he wouldn't render an opinion about what my mother was doing until he had the opportunity to go and see it for himself. And as soon as he walked in that room and saw what they were doing for this little girl, he immediately realized it may have applications for me and what I was going through. Um, Because while we had very different stories, in the end we were both oxygen-deprived. And so it was very shortly thereafter that my parents got on a plane and they met with a man by the name of Art Sandler. And he was the
2: guy who put my program together. Okay, so how did the therapy that you received address neuroplasticity and help neurologically re- reorganize your brain?
0: Well, I think the first thing that I would ask your listeners to, to understand or at least entertain the idea of is simply that it is the process of development and it is the experiences that we accrue as a result of that process that helps shape our minds not only our minds, but our bodies as well. And I think a lot of people can readily understand how going to the gym every day might physically change your body. The same thing is happening for a little baby. As they're learning how to crawl around on their stomachs in a military type of pattern, they're doing all sorts of things like arching the bottoms of their feet and wearing hip sockets and developing secondary curves in their spine. And all of these incredible things are happening from a very anatomical perspective. But on a neurological level, there is a tremendous amount more occurring for that child. So when we take a child through a program of neurological reorganization, what we're doing is we're looking for the missed stages of a child's development, and we're putting those stages back in so that the child may receive not just the physical benefits from them, from those exercises and those activities, but also the neurological benefit. In my case, when Art Sandler evaluated me, he found that primarily my, my, the disorganized areas of my brain were an area called the pons and, an, and multiple different organs that all groups get grouped into a part of the brain, functionally known as the midbrain. Um, and after, after putting a program together that, you know, is developmentally based on the the activities that stimulate those brain centers, I began the process of healing.
2: All right. You have um, described things. You've described the importance in the past of not looking at deficits as simply output problems, but looking at deficits as indicators of... um, Brain structure, and therefore function problems.
0: Exactly. So, w- when we when we take a child and we bring a child into, uh, let's say we're in this school system, and we've got an eight year old child, um, he's he's going into whatever the the third grade perhaps, and we look at this child when the in a lot of in a lot of scenarios, there is the possibility that that child is going to be evaluated by his physical therapist, his occupational therapist, his speech-language pathologist, and whoever else may be part of his team as though he is a typical 8-year-old child. What we want to do is we don't want to look at him as though he's a typically, typical 8-year-old child because he's not typical. We, we know that. Mom and dad know that. The team knows that. What we want to do is we want to determine where along the way did this child miss stages in his development, because that tells us a lot about how his brain is functioning. So we can have a child who's chronologically, as in from his birth date, who's eight years old, but neurologically this child may not have matured at the same rate as a typical eight-year-old. So we may be looking at an eight-year-old and evaluating him from his chronological age when the child who's actually standing in front of us may have the skills of a four-year-old. And we'd be better off looking at that child, and this wouldn't, I don't advocate doing this, but we'd be better off evaluating that child as though he was a four-year-old than an eight-year-old. But even then we'd be missing, I think, the mark. Because I think what we want to do is we want to look at the child's entire developmental process. And we want to say, okay, so he's missing some skills here that he should have developed when he was four months old, and he's missing some skills at the six-month-old level and the eight-month-old level, et cetera, et cetera. And what we get is this very – we get this picture of this child who's got scattered – neurological disorganization. Does that make sense?
2: Wow, I like that. Scattered neurological disorganization. So, in other words, we don't fix the function to fix the function. For example, just teaching the child how to rote, stick a stamp on the page. We see what movements we uh, can facilitate to grow those centers of the brain that then will encourage that that those functional skills.
0: Yeah, I think what you're saying, Terry, is that we don't want to take
2: things out of context.
0: So, you know, we can look at a child who's eight years old and doesn't have a mature pencil grasp. You know, they don't have the ability to oppose thumb and forefinger in what's called cortical opposition. So as a result of that, they've got this very awkward pen grasp. Maybe they hold their pencil with the full fist or something. You know, we can approach that from an occupational therapy perspective and we can, you know, place accommodations for the child. So we give him, you know, different grippers to try to improve his grip, and we do things strictly with his hands. But if we look at that child's entire developmental process, what we're going to most likely see, and, you know, this is couch diagnosing, and it's strictly based on my experience of almost 16 years working in the business now, but for the kids who have the immature pencil grasp what you're often going to see is a child who doesn't use their legs when they're doing their combat crawling on their stomach. Wow. And as a result of that, because they're not using their legs and they're not deriving any energy from that really strong lower center of their body, they have to pull themselves across the floor with their arms. And that almost always means that they're going to have their hands fisted in this really tight position And they're basically going to be digging with their elbows. So, what that evolves into is a child who, when they get up and run, there's going to be all sorts of things, and I'm not going to, I don't have time to hit on all of them. But just in very general terms, one of the things that you're going to see is that when the child gets up and learns how to run, he's going to have a lot of restricted, very restricted movement in his shoulders and his arms. And when he goes to use a pencil, He's going to have learned and and become habituated into this kind of fisted hand position. So if we go back and we only address the way that the child is writing, we've missed the mark because what we have when we look at a child from a developmental perspective is the ability to go back and, yeah, we'll improve the way the child's going to use the pen, but clearly there's many more important things that we need to do for that child. By teaching the child how to use his legs when he's crawling around on the floor, we're going to get that nice, strong reach that reaches out way above his head. We're going to get open hands. We're going to stimulate the palms of the hands. We're going to encourage deep breathing. We're going to arch the bottoms of the feet so the child's not flat-footed anymore. We're going to wear hip sockets. We're gonna encourage really deep breathing because they're breathing against their own body weight. But all of those things are secondary. Primarily what we're doing is we're building the architecture of the part of the brain known as the PONS. And the PONS is what creates a sense of belonging for a child. A healthy PONS makes us feel like we have a place in the family. And it gives us an ability to appropriately bond and, and and live in a community. Um, it's it's what signals the production of serotonin, which is the happy neurotransmitter, which is gonna help us maintain positive moods. It's responsible for um, some different visual functions. It's responsible for our awareness of pain and temperature and discomfort. So if your child has sensory integration disorder, you're looking at a child who's got trouble with the pons. So we can, we can look at things through this very narrow lens of my child has a manual problem and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to approach it strictly from a manual perspective, or we can look at it from the much broader perspective of my child has not attained all the developmental milestones that he should have. As a result, he hasn't benefited from those experiences, and he's going to have a lack of skills as a result.
2: Fascinating. We will pick up with this when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Anthemica. We'll be right back with Sergeant Goodchild and Kristen Selby Gonzalez.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: Calm.
2: with Sergeant Goodchild, the founder and executive director of Active Healing, www.activehealing.org, and Kristen Silvia gonzalez my co-host this week, director of autism education for Enzymetica. And Sarge, before the break, you were giving us some really fascinating information. So is that what Art Sandler did for you by addressing, for example, the PONS section uh, of your brain? he helped your neurological reorganization and took a whole-body approach?
0: That is exactly what Art Sandler did for me. In fact, Art Sandler was the very first person who looked at my parents and told them that I had a brain injury and that all of the symptoms that they were currently trying to medicate me for um, were a result of the various levels of my neurology that had not yet become integrated and so he put forth the idea that what they really needed to do was was try to through the neural plasticity of the brain create some integrity at those different brain stages through a movement program and of course right. I, I came home they put that program into place for me it was very intensive for the first nine months. My brother and sister were in school, and I stayed at home with my mother, and I did an intensive program every day. But by the end of that first school year of my doing this program, I was completely seizure-free. And I have been, obviously, since, and I don't take any sort of medication.
2: That's wonderful, and and, uh, very eloquent and articulate as well. So um, it's a good thing your parents didn't follow... The prognosis uh, of the doctors, and uh, therefore gave you uh, the best opportunities. We need to mention again in this program that you also used something called masking. If you want to briefly touch upon that,
0: so yes, masking was a big part of my program. So, uh, um, one of the one of the factors for the majority of kids that I see in the office is that as a result of having not gone through these functional movement stages and these different had these different sensory experiences is that they haven't really developed a good strong lung and chest capacity and most of them are shallow breathers and that is just not optimal and you know if we're trying to optimize function for a child we really need to place a lot of emphasis on nutrition and you know we've got enzymes that are vitally important to kids with with autism We've got other dietary things that need to be done. Um, we, you, there's lots of different things. Kristen, I know, has, uh, has put that piece together for her son with methyl B12 shots and all the different interventions. But the most important nutrient for a child to, to be able to survive or, even better, to thrive is oxygen because we can only live for about three minutes without it. And um, living a lifetime in sort of oxygen debt is detrimental to the sort of progress and the recovery that we want to see this this group of kids make. So to encourage deep breathing, I use a process called hypercapnia. And hypercapnia is known by its more friendly um, name, which is masking. And... Um, Essentially, what we're doing is we're having the child re-breathe the carbon dioxide that he's exhaling for a short duration of time, long enough, however, to stimulate the deep breathing response. So while they're breathing deeply, um, we are also simultaneously getting um, dilation of the blood vessels, bringing oxygen to the brain. So we're breathing now from the lower lobes of the lungs, and uh, we're bringing all that oxygen oxygen into our blood system through the lungs, and that's been enhanced to carry even more blood and therefore oxygen to the brain. Um, when I was doing masking, I was um, and especially in those first nine months when I was doing it most intensively, I was doing probably close to fifty or sixty masks a day um, and you know there's a there's a specific way in which they need to be, there's a specific duration for which each mask should be done. And then there's a specific timing to how close together you can cluster your masks. Um, And that's not information I feel comfortable going into because I think there's a lot of very well-meaning parents whose kids, um, they realize their kids could probably benefit from a program of masking who will go out and, uh, with the best intention, try to do it at home. And it's really important that you're working with a a therapist or a professional who's had a lot of experience with masking and that you don't try to go that one alone.
2: Right. Is this something where they could contact you and find out um, practitioners on the east and west coast and maybe some places in between who can help parents with this? Yes. Uh, Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, we promised, uh, we promised uh, everybody that we would get to the, uh, the nuts and bolts of therapies at your, your practice and what they can do at home, and then I want to segue into uh, some real-life examples with you and Kristen. So at active healing, when a child comes in who presents with deficits, how do you determine a starting point for neurological reorganization, a sensory motor evaluation, and how do you guide treatment?
0: Simply what we do is we use something called the ontogeny of human neurological functions as the measure um, or the standard by which all kids are evaluated. An ontogeny lays out, uh, and this is an oversimplification of the process, and I don't mean to, uh, to demean the human being by comparing it to an automobile, but if you're, if you're buying a Volkswagen Jetta, Every single Volkswagen Jetta goes through the same process. They kind of come off an assembly line. And, you know, there's, there are some differences as far as, you know, one's going to get some nicer paneling perhaps on the interior than another lower model version of the same car. But everything is installed in the same order. Babies are meant to go through a very sequential process from the time that they're conceived right up, and especially through the first six to eight years of life. What an ontogeny does is it looks at development from the perspective of vision, hearing, sense of touch, mobility, language, and hand function. So there are certain hand functions that are present at birth and certain mobilities, et cetera, that are present at birth that then because of the child's experience, get sophisticated. And new functions arise with new levels of brain. So as the the brain becomes more sophisticated, those six different functions, again, the functions of vision, hearing, touch, mobility, language, and hand function. As the brain becomes more sophisticated, those functions associated with those six areas become more sophisticated. And we want to make sure that that process unfolds in its correct order and relatively in its correct timing. So a child comes into active healing, and I'm going to look at all of those various six different pathways from the perspective of their medulla, the brain stages of their medulla, their pons, their midbrain, and their cortex. And what we're going to find is that while lots of those skills are present, some of them might not be fully sophisticated. And we're basically creating a trail of evidence. So let's say I'm evaluating a a three- or four-year-old little boy. And I look and I see that his pupils don't constrict when I shine a flashlight in his eyes. That is a function of the medulla. The pupillary constriction is a function of the medulla. And if so I could look at that and I could say, okay, the eyes aren't constricting. There's obviously a problem with the medulla. But that would be putting the cart before the horse because there could be a lot of other things going on with that child. There could be, um, there could be a lot of stress, a lot of cortisol that's preventing the child's eyes from constricting or some sort of other stress hormone. Um, or just the fact that the child's in fight or flight, who knows, Um, although that wouldn't be, well, in any case. It could be something more um, structural with the eye. But if I go through the medulla, and I also see that not only does he have problems with the eye, but that he lacks a full range of mobility in all his extremities, and that his Babinski reflex on the bottom of his foot isn't what it should be, and he didn't have a strong birth cry. I've just looked at the medulla from six different perspectives and if I see that there's a lot of different things from that perspective that seem off, that's now pretty good evidence that the medulla isn't doing what it should be doing, that it's not as integrated as it could be. We're going to look not only at the medulla, we're going to look at the pons, the midbrain and the cortex in the same, in the, from the same perspective. So creating a trail of evidence to show us which levels of the brain have become integrated and which levels of the brain still need some neurological boosting. And then we can can say, okay, so the lowest level where this child is showing us deficits is in the PONS level of the brain. Well, we know from all of our study on human development and childhood development that these These specific items are good at, you know, they correlate with that brain stage. So we're going to put those elements into a child's program, and we're going to watch as those elements slowly reorganize and integrate that level of the brain. Specifically, we'd be talking about, you know, if we're talking about the ponds, we're going to be talking about crawling, and we're going to be talking about crawling on the stomach, and we're going to be talking about a specific group of of uh, dynamic ranges of motion that we're putting, we'll be putting the child's arms and legs through, and et cetera.
2: Wow, sir, this is really exciting. You're, you're really looking at and studying the whole child. You're not just uh, slapping a pill at them or something like that.
0: No, I mean the whole. most of the parents who come to active healing want to get their children off medication. Right. Um, and a lot of parents have submitted <laughs> to doing medications simply because they, they need to be able to get through their day-to-day life. And without, without some sort of medication, that can be extremely hard to do. But I don't think there are very many parents who come to active healing in any case who have begun those types of treatments with, with the expectation that they'll be doing them forever. They're short-term solutions.
2: Right. And certainly, looking at the whole child, and respecting the whole child, and healing the whole child, uh, stage by stage, seems to be a better long-term solution to me. So we will be right back from break with Sarge and Kristen, and we'll pick up with some real-life examples at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, EndoMedica. We'll be right back. <music>
5: Com.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Terry.
2: We're back with Sergeant Goodchild and Kristen
3: Selby-Gonzalez. And during the break, Kristen had a question for Sarge. yeah, I was as you were talking, it was just so fascinating to me because I was thinking about the oxygen oxygen in the brain, and you know, um I'm one of these mommies that like automatically start correlating you know different uh, treatments that are out there. And you know after reading your article because I knew you were going to be on the show and hearing your your last show. Um, you know, I was really curious on masking, number one, and then I wanted to know how it correlated with hyperbaric oxygen treatment, because we hear a lot about that in the autism community, and so I'm sure there's other mommies and daddies out there thinking the same thing I am, and, you know, what is the difference really between the two, um, and, you know, can you do both at the same time, and, you know, just what are your thoughts on that?
0: Um, I First of all, I would like to say that I'm a huge fan of hyperbaric oxygen, and I think I... I don't think, I've seen it work wonders in lots of different, um, in lots of different clients. I also see a lot of kids um, with cerebral palsy. And I've seen it do amazing things for their muscle tone. I've seen it obviously boost children's immune systems. I've seen it increase their speech and their alertness and their awareness. And overall I think hyperbaric oxygen is a terrific therapy. But what I would want parents to understand is that it's the polar opposite of masking. When we do masking, we're increasing carbon dioxide, and the chemical receptors are registering that imbalance, the, the, the adjustment of carbon dioxide in the blood suddenly. And um, that's what's stimulating the body to go into that deep breathing response that's bringing oxygen to the brain. With hyperbaric oxygen, what you're obviously doing is you're increasing the oxygenation under high pressure of the body, and you're oxygenating all of the tissues and the muscle and the brain, um, and I don't know what it does long-term for a child's breathing. I, I wouldn't imagine it would do anything detrimental, um, and I think in the... I think it's going to help many families achieve whatever goals they might have for their kids, um, be it autism or be it some other challenges that they may be facing. Um, It can be done, it it can't be done simultaneously. You can't be in a hyperbaric oxygen tank and doing a mask. But on the same day that you did a hyperbaric session, you could absolutely do masking as part of your routine. they're, they're both going to be beneficial for different reasons. And one of the things that I love about masking is it teaches kids to be lifelong deep breathers because you're actually triggering the deep breathing response from a reflexive standpoint. And with enough repetition, that deep breathing response just becomes learned, and they've now become reflexively deep breathers. Um, and with the hyperbaric oxygen, it it has all the benefits that, that your parents have probably investigated along the, along the path. Where did, oh,
3: I'm Where oh, Kristen, I'm sorry. No, real quickly. Where would, as um, I know, would they only contact your area, like your center? Because, like, you know, we have people listening all over the country. I mean, is there, are there a lot of people that are really um, trained in masking? Because I, I just feel like it's such a new concept, and I'm just so intrigued by it and listening to your story. And I'm sure there's um, others, you know, thinking the same thing I am.
0: Right. There's a, there are a few of us, but there are very, very few people in the country who are practicing neurological reorganization. Um, Betty Lamont is a terrific friend and a great practitioner. Nina Jonio is, a, uh, is another practitioner and a great close friend of mine. Um, and the three of us are constantly out there sharing best practices and have actually founded something called the neurological oh got its the NRRP. Um, but it's—it's it's basically the national organization for um, practitioners of neurological reorganization, and the three of us are the co-founders of that.
3: So do you train mommies and daddies how to do it? Um, like, well that's
0: exactly why we founded the um, the National Organization of Neurological Reorganization practitioners. It's a it's a it's a mouthful. But ultimately what we're trying to do is is create a training program so that we can train other practitioners to do this same work.
2: All right. so I really like how you respect the child by looking at um, at the whole body uh, and at root causes and at instilling these lifelong good habits such as you know breathing correctly, deep breathing. And let's move on to our, our, some real-life uh, examples. I know that you can't diagnose or treat a child you've never seen over the airways, but let's see if we can compare what we've talked about to Kristen's experience with her son Jackson. Kristen, what... Uh, has Sarge been talking about that reminds you of anything that you've seen Jackson go
3: through? Um, everything. <laughs> um, so can
2: I ask? Can I ask a couple of pointed
0: questions? Is sure. that all right, Kristen? Um, is he flat-footed?
3: Um, you know what? He was flat-footed, um, and we still we still struggle a little bit with that. There's moments, like he arches, his, we have to constantly work on arching his foot.
0: Okay. And how? And you're using some sort of physical therapy technique to do that?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, we, we do a lot of things that we've learned from the OTs. Um, I, although when you were talking, I thought I don't think we're really um, emphasizing. More. I think we could definitely emphasize more. I was just so fascinated as you were talking.
0: Um. So, and did he crawl when he was from the time he was like three months old until he was about eight months old?
3: Do you did know you? what was interesting is Jackson when he crawled he scooted but he scooted backwards first.
0: So but so did he spend any time on his
3: stomach? Yes, but he didn't do a lot of when you were talking about using the um not the legs and he used his arms. That's he would use he would dig in with his elbows and he, but he wouldn't crawl forward like the other kids. He always, he really he scooted backwards for probably maybe three months, and then when he learned to stand, he walked. And so he never crawled like the other kids, in my opinion.
0: Right. Huh. Okay, so this is very interesting. So what, we, so what we've got, um, so he's, he's actually pushing away, which is interesting. That's a lot of times when a child is about, you know, three months old or maybe even a little bit younger, and they're just experimenting with being on their stomach and they're trying to figure things out they haven't integrated the lower half of the body with the upper half of the body yet. So typically what we see is we see kids using their hands before they really coordinate their legs in with this whole movement and this posture. And oftentimes what happens is the kid, we put them down on the floor and we leave the room for a couple of seconds, and we, we come back into the room, and they've, they've pushed themselves backwards into a corner. And now they're fussing because they haven't figured out how to get themselves out of the corner because all they've been able to do is push backwards with the hand. It sounds to me like that maybe was uh, that stage of Jackson's development was the stage that he kind of got stuck in. And if you're looking at it from – I like to look at this from a psychological perspective with a lot of people – especially when I'm working with older people like my 18 and above crowd, Um, the people who come and use only their arms to pull themselves across the floor tend to be very cortical. Um, They tend to be the very intellectual people. They're not particularly grounded, and they're not really good at dealing with other people's emotions all the time. And they've used that really strong intellectual kind of linear capacity that they have to literally pull themselves through life. Um, does any of that ring true for Jackson?
3: Oh, it was funny. We were just um, his father and I were just talking last night um, when I came back, and we were. I was getting. I was read your article, and I was like, getting you know ready for this interview, and um, I was telling him. I said, "Gosh, you know what was funny was when Jackson was you know in the crawling stages." Um, you know, there was a time when he was really into Teletubbies, and he we thought he was brilliant. We thought this was like a genius. This was before he was diagnosed. He wanted to get four Teletubbies from one room to the other, and he put one under his chin. He put one between his legs. He put one in one arm, one in the other arm, and he scooted backwards in the hall into our main bedroom. And then he wanted to put all of them on this post. They wouldn't fit, so then he put all four. There's four posts. He figured out how to put one on each post. And he wasn't even one years old, and I remember looking at his father telling him, oh, my gosh, this child just did problem-solving. He just did algebra, but yet he wasn't really, you know, um, right. he, he wasn't really, like, you know, crawling the right way.
0: You know, you bring up a really important point, a very, very important point. I think that our kids, and I speak, I'm speaking generally now, um, so this doesn't apply to every child, but I think in the majority of cases when you have a child who's had to struggle and find new ways of accommodating themselves and problem solving in a way that most kids are never asked to. What you tend to develop are kids with higher intelligences. And I, I've seen it so many times in this office where the child comes in and it's been presumed by the school system that they can't read, and they can't do this, and they can't do that, and. You know, they're just a behavioral problem as far as the classroom teacher is concerned. And we show the parents that actually they can read and they can do these things. What we've got are kids whose IQs are just imprisoned by these dysfunctional neurologies. And as soon as you can get their neurologies, you can start providing them some of the keys to open up some of those gates the intelligence just comes spilling out of these kids. And it's what my mother referred to as her glimmer theory. So what you saw in Jackson at that point was a glimmer of his overall intelligence. And what we need to do is go from that being a glimmer to it being a strobe light that's on pretty frequently to a constant illuminating
2: light. Wow. That's awesome. That is awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, we have uh, Sarge's glimmer quote in the uh, Autism Mothers Unite Worldwide uh, calendar, and I really like uh, what you said, uh, Sarge, IQs imprisoned by dysfunctional neurology. Hey, Kristen, maybe one year we're going to have to have uh, sayings from Sarge calendar.
3: I guess so, yeah, definitely.
2: <laughs> we'll be right back from break with Sarge and Kristen. Thank you for our sponsor, Enzymetica. We'll be right back to talk about what you can do at home. shows over approximately three months, we have promised listeners that we will talk about therapeutic um, practices that you can engage in at home with your children. And so Sarge Goodchild from Active Healing is going to describe that for us now.
0: So I think it's really important to understand, and I, I, I don't always think this is recognized by a lot of the professionals that, that see these kids, the parents are the best resources for their children. They have the most amount of time, the most amount of appreciation, and the most love for the child. And those three qualities are vital if you're going to put into place a really um, good, strong recovery program. And all of the great programs recognize that and, and utilize parents to do these therapies at home with the guidance of a professional behind the scenes making recommendations, um, but but very much taking feedback from the parents. Uh, so the way that I do that at Active Healing is once we determine where the child needs that neurological boost, I put into place a really well-organized program that is going to involve a sensory diet and a motor um, a motor component, or what I call a functional movement program. So we're going to give the child an opportunity. I'm going to back up for just a second. We have to understand when we look at a child, or uh, what I would ask your listeners to understand, is that there are five paths into the brain. The only way that our brain can take in information about its environment and its surroundings is through the five sensory pathways. And then it has the ability to express information and interact with the environment through three pathways. And those pathways are language, mobility, and hand function. When we put a program into place for a child, we don't we're not teaching a child to become an Olympic an Olympic athlete in the event of tummy crawling or creeping on (laughs) hands and knees. What we are looking to do is enrich the child's neurological environment by providing him developmentally appropriate stimulation to specifically the three sensory pathways of mobility um, and sense of touch and hearing. We don't work too much. I mean, I do work with taste and smell, but they're not as big a component of the program. We're really focusing on tactility, movement, and hearing. Um, So what we do is we structure this program that gives the child the ability to feel what it feels like to move in a healthy manner. And the parents are very much at the crux of that. So the child's going to get this opportunity two or three times a day to do sets of dynamic ranges of motion. And these are ranges of motion that coordinate the movement of the head with the movement of the arms and legs in a very specific and structured way. And because the child is performing this routine, the, you know, a set of these exercises two or three times a day, he's learning what it feels like to move his body in an appropriate way. So if we look at Jackson for a second, um, Kristen, if we look at Jackson, mm-hmm. imagine what we could have done for him if we'd stepped back and I'd said, okay, this is how Jackson is able to move right now. Let's give him the experience of what it's like to actually pull himself forward with his arms, and then let's immediately after that exercise give him the opportunity to get down on the floor and actually do it. So we're kind of teaching to the test. We're saying, here's what it feels like to move. Mommy and Daddy are going to organize these movements for you, and right after we're done with that, we're going to put you on the floor in in the most accommodating environment that we can and we're going to give you the opportunity to do what we just showed you. And he's going to get down on the floor and it's not going to be quite right, but you're going to see improvements fairly early on. And as this goes on in a daily experience for him, Jackson's going to, with your assistance, very quickly learn. How to, pull in, how to move in a proper cross-lateral pattern on his stomach. And as he does that, he's going to start wiring his brain and he's going to start having all of those adaptive functions that his neurology should have. It's going to be healthy. Um, so the parents are central to everything that's going on. Um, they're creating an environment in their home. It's child-centered. It's parent-directed and it 's
2: home based excellent, sarge is there any is there any one tip that you would give parents today that that might be able to apply generally and safely to all children other than put away the little multicolored candies and
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no candy <laughs> Okay.
2: Um,
0: but I think what i want what I would encourage every single parent out there to do is um, in whatever way you are comfortable, raise your children on their stomachs. The stomach, the, the floor, is the child's neurological workshop. And to deprive your child of, of opportunity to be on his stomach on the floor is to deprive that child of the opportunity to do neurological work that is going to create a healthy human being. So raise your kids on your stomach. That means doing things on your stomach. That means getting down and when you're engaging in playtime with your child, be on your stomach. When you're decorating your child's room or, or whatever rooms in your house the child spends the most time in, decorate the baseboards so that the things that are of visual interest to them are down on tummy level. As adults, we have a tendency to decorate at our eye level and everything that's of interest to these infants is way up high. And so what we're, endure- what we're doing is, um, you know, unconsciously trying to accelerate these kids' development. We really need to keep them down on their stomachs. And at
3: any age, time. real quick, I just want to make sure parents might be listening, if their children are, are having this at any age, would you recommend them doing it at, right now?
0: Yes. Get your kids back down on their stomachs and do whatever you can to encourage them to crawl on their tummies. It's one of the most important developmental stages that any child is going to, to progress through. And if you're a grandparent and you're listening to this and your child is coming to you and saying, my eight-month-old son stood up and walked. Isn't he brilliant? As a grandparent, that's an awesome opportunity for you to say, of course, honey, your son is absolutely brilliant, and I love him dearly, but he's not. he's not ready to walk yet let's keep him down on his stomach and let's let him let's let him enjoy his childhood for as long as he can before we encourage him to be up on hands or
2: up on his feet well Sarge thank you for coming back and sharing your fascinating information and uh, to everyone uh, again Sarge wrote a wonderful article for the Autism File magazine and if you're listening and would like me to email you a PDF of that article please drop me a line at aranga at autism1.org. Sarge is also quoted in the Autism Mothers Unite Worldwide calendar. Kristen, do you want to give the uh, website link for that?
3: Sure, yeah, it's um, www.autismhopealliance.org.
2: Okay, and Sarge, I'm so sorry, I think I might have, uh, the music came on and I think you might have still been speaking. Was there anything you needed to add?
0: Uh, no, I think I am all set. I'd just like to say thank you for this amazing opportunity to be on the radio with both of you. It's been, it's been my pleasure, and I hope we have the opportunity to do it again.
2: Well, I'm sure that we'll see you at Autism One uh, next May, at least I hope so. And thank you again for all this exciting and fascinating information. I really feel like your approach respects the child. To our listeners, my guest next week is Dr. Paul Connett, author of The Case Against Flora and How Hazardous Waste Ended Up in Our Drinking Water and The Bad Science and Powerful Politics That Keep It There. Don't forget to place your pre-order for Kim Stagliano's soon-to-be-released bestseller, All I Can Handle, I'm No Mother Teresa, a life-raising three daughters with autism, published by Skyhorse Publishing and available at Amazon.com. Our colleague Wendy of the National Autism Association has let us know this is a great read. And speaking of, remember to visit the National Autism Association's website at www.nationalautism.org to learn about the exciting National Autism Conference November 11th through 14th in sunny, beautiful Tampa, St. Pete, Florida. For questions about this program, please email me at tiaranga at autism1.org. Thank you to this program's sponsor, Enzymedica, manufacturers of digestive enzymes to complement your therapeutic diet. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.